Well, thanks for listening to Hope Signals. This is your host, Mark Mason. We are a ministry of Life on the Verge Ministries. You can learn more about us at lifeontheverge.com. We're in part three of a series I titled More. It was, uh, I guess, spawned after I'd watched a self-help seminar where they were talking about more. We all want more, more, more. More is up to whatever your definition is you need more of. Um and it was good, uh, I, but I, when I watch that stuff and I, I read self-help books, which I do read some of those sometimes, there's some great advice there. There's actually some godly principles there, but too frequently those kinds of books and seminars, they either leave God out completely, they use his principles, or they refer to God as the universe or you know whoever your God is kind of thing, little g. And uh, even if the writer's a Christian, you know, which I don't get, because the Bible says that you know, if we deny that Jesus is the Christ, then we're antichrist. And so we're looking at more, the idea of more, strictly through the lens of Scripture and Jesus. And so I'm taking it from John 10.10, 10, where Jesus said, the idea from John 10.10, 10, where Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And the word abundantly has a lot of definitions. Um, other than the word abundant. As a matter of fact, some versions, translations, you know, we translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek, and the words that we, we can't find an English word that means the same thing as the Greek word exactly, because the Greek word is packed with so many variations and definitions. When Jesus said abundantly, that actually, the word is parasos, and it means more, greater, excessive, abundant, over and above, more than is necessary, super added, superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon. This is the kind of life that Jesus came to give us. And so in the first couple of episodes, you know, we talked about keys to growing to the, in the, into this abundant life. How do we get more? And not too often we look for more, if, especially if we leave God out of it, we think that we need more money, we need more power, we need more position, that kind of thing. We need more stuff. But in reality, we're all trying to satisfy this universal need for love, acceptance, worth, and security. We all have those needs. What good is it to have a lot of money if you don't have love, if you don't have acceptance, if you don't have worth, self-worth, if you don't have security? And, and so what we most often need is more fruit of the Spirit. We need more love. We need more joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, those kinds of things. If we'll walk in the Spirit, then we'll live a well-rounded life, the kind of life that God wants us to have. Those things may lead to more money, more position, more power, that kind of stuff, but that's not the end all, okay? So in the first couple of series, we talked about gratitude being a key to more, you know, biblical principle that if we're not thankful for what we already have, if we slip into murmuring and complaining, um, God's certainly not going to reward that. No more than you're going to reward your kids if they're not thankful for what you've already done. And then we talked about generosity in one of the episodes and how that's a key to more. You know, you reap what you sow. And so, sow into what you you're believing God for what you need more of. Do you need more kindness in your life? Start sowing some kindness. You know, do you need a great example is with your sp your spouse? And I'll preach to myself here. If you want your spouse to be more thoughtful, more kind, more gentle to you, then you need to sow that into your spouse. So I was going to talk about 
the principle of management, and I, I think I touched on that in a previous podcast, um, the idea that if we'll manage well what God has already given us, it'll lead to more. That is a key to increase. Management is a key to increase. Matthew uh, 25, 29 says, for to everyone who has been given, uh, to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now that scripture, that pre- almost those exact words, is found in Matthew 13, 12, what I just read, 25, 29, Mark 4, 25, Luke 19, 26. Jesus was trying to get across if you'll use what you have, or like I say all the time, do all you can where you are with what you have, and God won't leave you where you're at. And we as believers, we want to say, do all you can to forward the gospel with what you have, and God won't leave you where you're at. Um, yeah, And that doesn't mean that we all have platform ministries where we preach. It means that we're trying to be light and salt wherever we are, whatever we do, whether it's in business or uh, it's, you know, in your community. We'll do the best that we can to somehow be the light of Christ, be the salt of the earth with what we've been given. And so I was going to go in deep there, but then I thought, you know, I, 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 wanted, I read a scripture that just kind of changed my trajectory a little bit, and I wanted to talk about a warning and of course, when I do this podcast, it's for me too. It's kind of comes out of many times my own Bible study as did this episode. So I'm going to give you, uh, I think it's four soul checks when you're in the pursuit of more because we can really go off the rails. I did when I was in college. God saved me. He rescued me. I was so faithful in church. I was volunteering. And then I took the blessing of getting my brain cells back after all the drugs I did. I got my GED. I ended up going to vocational school. Then I ended up in college and I was making all A's. And pretty soon I didn't have time to go to church because I was studying for my finals. And I went off the rails. I went into college wanting to get an education in electronics so that I could work for CBN, which was where I'm from in Virginia Beach. And I could somehow play a behind-the-scenes role in forwarding the gospel. After I'd been in college for a year or so, my trajectory changed. I want to get a high-paying job as an engineer, and then I can finance the gospel, you know. And I just got, and I got away from God. And so I want to give you some soul checks when you're trying to prosper. You know, there's a lot of preachers out there that are frankly just liars and tricksters and charlatans, and they prey on the poor. And they prey on the appetite that people have for more. And they try to convince them, if you'll write a check for $269, God spoke to me that 269 people are going to give a check for $269, and God is going to open the windows of heaven, and he's going to bless you with, you know, yada, yada, yada. That stuff just makes me sick. If I was rich like Elvis, I would do what he did and shoot my TV when I see that stuff. Anyway, (laughs) the scripture that led to this particular podcast and these soul checks that I want to give you, kind of a warning when we're trying to prosper, we're, we're trying to increase, to stay on the rails and keep the main thing the main thing. In Ecclesiastes 4.4, this is the NIV version, this scripture says, I saw, this is presumably, presumably Solomon that wrote Ecclesiastes, who was the richest man ever. He coded everything in gold. He had it all. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a great study. He had it all. And he came to the end of himself, like, you know, this is not, this is not it. You know, the stuff of this world is not going to satisfy. Anyway, he wrote in 4.4, 4, 
And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. The New Living Translation says, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. The English Standard Version says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The Webster's 1828 Dictionary, I love that old dictionary, it defines that word envy as to feel uneasiness, mortification, or discontent at the sight of superior excellence, reputation, or happiness enjoyed by another, to repine at another's prosperity, to fret or grieve oneself at the real or supposed superiority of another, and to hate him on that account. Wow. The, the more modern definition is painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. Envy and its cousin jealousy can lead us down some treacherous roads. You know, the root course, uh, the root, of course, being pride, which is caused, this, all of this is caused by comparison. Theodore Roosevelt said comparison is the thief of, of joy. And we live in a world where our it's it's hard to enjoy joy, isn't it? We have to fight for joy. And part of the reason is sometimes we can feel disenfranchised. If you watch too much media, if you social media, TV, movies, magazines, all that stuff that the world puts out, you'll start to compare your life with what others have, someone that has a nicer house, a better relationship, a nicer car, whatever it is, they're taking vacations here. And you know, when you look at social media, you, oftentimes you're looking at the highlight reel of someone's life. You don't see behind the scenes. So it's really hard to not compare uh, in this world that we're in. We have to fight against that. It's all about perspective. If you're going to compare, then, you know, I, I was with my grandson's uh, well, we're with them now. We're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area for a few days uh, on our way back to Virginia. And uh, and they're all teenagers now. One's in high school, one's in middle school, and uh, the other is finishing up elementary school, sixth grade, I think. And they're awesome. They're well-adjusted. They're happy. And they all live in what is probably maybe a 1,200-square-foot apartment, small little place, but there's joy and there's love in that house, and they, they don't feel disenfranchised. They're provided for. Uh, and I cautioned them, you know, I, I said, you know, you're going to miss this one day. You probably all three of them are going to grow up to make good money and have even a bigger place than they live in now. I, I believe that. They're both very, or all three are very, very smart, and uh, they have dreams and that kind of thing. I said, but you're going to miss this. And, and I'm so glad that they're not feeling disenfranchised, feeling like, they're, they're, in other words, they're looking up. It's okay to be inspired by people. Look up and say, I want to be inspired as long as we don't envy. We don't get jealous of people that have more or better because we everybody has drama. Everybody has wounds. Everybody has trials. I don't care how much makeup you put on it, how much plastic surgery, whatever. There's We all have pain and anguish. And so anyway, uh, I just told them, if you're going to compare then compare your life to some poor kid that doesn't have loving parents. Compare your, yourself to someone who doesn't have air conditioning. Compare yourself to someone that has lesser than. And don't think yourself better. Be thankful for what you do have. Excuse me. <coughs> Nevertheless, 
And, and you know, I mean, I read a quote by Mark Twain. It said that man will do many things to get himself loved. He will do all things to get himself envied. And that is what the world does. And we do it sometimes, right? We want to, we want to look, we have this look at me uh, complex. Don't you wish you had what I have kind of thing. And so we don't, most of us, we don't live there all the time. But even as believers, we can slip in and out. I'll guarantee you that every person person listening to this podcast has at some time in their life been motivated to do or buy something because we saw someone else putting on airs with prosperity, position, or possessions, right? Prisons are full of people, which is where we spend most of our ministry life is, is, is behind bars. They're full of people that were fooled. And they robbed or they murdered, they did, you know, heinous things to acquire something they thought would satisfy. And that's an easy observation, but it happens, you know, I see, I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, this is kind of dangerous, but I, I see it in the church world, put it that way. I've seen, I have seen it. I've seen a pastor build a huge building, you know, massive building because things were growing. Another pastor sees it and says, hey, I got to keep up with the Joneses. I'm, I'm seeing this from a distance, okay, but I saw a case, a couple of cases of this in my ministry life up close. So the other guy that's watching this guy, maybe he's inspired, maybe he's envious. I don't know. But no, nonetheless, he builds the big building, but his community wasn't ready for it. And then the church goes through a split and the church is left with a massive amount of debt. It doesn't have enough people to pay for that debt. It struggles under the yoke of debt for years and years and years. I have seen that. And I'm not casting any stones because we all fall into this area where we, you know, compare. And, and we, we, here's a couple of observations, a couple of questions um, to ask. What is the difference between being inspired by someone else's prosperity, position, or possession versus being envious? Okay, to want more, to to want to excel or achieve or progress or prosper, that can be a very good thing. But the end doesn't justify the means, and that's where we're going to get into these soul checks. You know, when when we're trying to you know move down the or move up the ladder, so to speak, to guard ourselves from falling into envy. Uh, what, here's another question. What is the difference between selfish ambition and false humility? Well, that's a struggle. That's two extremes, isn't it? We know that selfish ambition is a work of the flesh. Galatians 5.20 tells us that. So the opposite end is, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to stick my head in the, in the sand, afraid to do anything, afraid for fear of coming across as overly ambitious. Well, that's the parable of the talents of the wicked and lazy servant. He buried what God had given him. So let's do a couple of soul checks and ask some questions real quick. You know, Solomon said this, the wisest man, you know, to have ever lived. So the Bible tells us, uh, said, look, I've seen all, all of this, you know, skill and all work. It springs from one man's envy of another. Now, Solomon was not in a good place, most scholars say, when he wrote Ecclesiastes. So it doesn't mean that everything he said is something to bank your life on. You've got to look at the whole picture he had kind of gotten away from his walk with God. I, I believe that's the way I've heard it been taught. You know, um, he wasn't where he needed to be. So he was kind of in a state of depression. But he landed in a good place by the end of the book um, where he said, you know, the end of it all is, is to basically love God and obey his commands. Uh, but let, let's, let's look at these soul checks. Some questions to ask when we're in the pursuit of more. One, 
does soul check one does someone else's property position or prosperity make me feel inferior now I, that's insecurity at work right there and i've been there buddy and and chances are you have too you see someone else that's maybe far better at you or better than you at a craft and it makes you feel weird maybe uneasy you know it's i i see guys i'm a guitar player so i see you know some dude will post something on instagram or you know facebook of some guy shredding the guitar something like, like let's take these uh these kids that are like 12 or 13 years old and they're just shredding the guitar and you've played for 30 years and you can't even come close to doing what that kid does people will comment on that well i guess i need to stop playing you know like like they're they're just they felt so inferior and the point is is that no one can can play like you my friend you might not be able to play like him but you're unique in the way that you play you have a role to play so don't feel inferior be superior at what God has given you to do with your life. You know, the noun envy, uh, the definition in Webster's 1828, means to feel uneasiness, mortification, or discontent, excited by the sight of another's superiority or success, accompanied with some degree of hatred or malignity, and often or usually with a desire or an effort to depreciate the person and with pleasure in seeing him depressed. That's what we'll sometimes do. We feel inferior and insecure. We see somebody really successful at something, and the first thing we do is try to find a hole in 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 their deal. We try to we try to uh, you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We, we 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 see someone that's really really good at something. They got a great marriage. We try to find the bad spots. Yeah, but. Yeah, well, that 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 yeah, they might look like they got a good relationship, but I heard blah blah blah, and it leads to gossip, right? Not everybody does that, and I'm a little scrambled on that thought. But you get what I'm saying. What the definition is saying is that, you know, another def the noun envy means that you see somebody successful, and sometimes the first thought in your mind is to put them down. And there's plenty of people that do that. Don't be that that person. You know, even in what we do. Uh, being a pastor versus being in prison ministry, man, I, I can get a real jaded, bad attitude about this kind of thing because, unfortunately, at least from my perspective at this stage of the game, it appears, and I would indict myself first, when I was a pastor, I did not give prison ministry a second thought, to be honest. I didn't think much about it. Of course, I wasn't presented with many opportunities to do a lot there, but I didn't go out and seek them either. Um, but now I see it from the other angle, and I realize that most churches do not have a significant prison ministry. They don't. Despite the fact that 2.4 million people are incarcerated in America's prisons and jails, uh, churches, if they, if they send you know a care pastor or a retired pastor to a local jail to do a Bible study once a week, they call that prison ministry. We, we go into prisons and bring a full band production, you know, and try to bring value. That's what we're doing. We're trying to say, look, Jesus values you, and we're trying to demonstrate that. And so we put on much bigger than what we we could get away with an acoustic guitar and a Bible. But we bring all this stuff in. We bring teams in. It costs a lot of money. You guys help support us to do that, right? And and we'll go in. I remember one guy, and then this guy was a he had been a lawyer before he went to prison. And he came up to me and he goes, Man, I've been here for 15 years and I've never seen a program like this. 
And I thought to myself, dude, there he, he meant like how big it was. We had a full band. And I said, dude, there's like 25 churches within you know, 10 miles of here. And you've never had a full scale service come in here for you? And, and so I can get very jaded when, you know, pastors, they have their own drama. Lord knows I was a pastor and it is a tough job and guys are leaving it every day. But if I'm not careful, I can look at a pastor who's enjoying kind of like a look. I mean, he's got a fair share of people throwing stones at him. But most pastors have a decent fan base, right? And I know what it is to be called Pastor Mark. Some people still call me Pastor Mark, even though I'm not a pastor anymore. And you get honor and you get respect and, you know, you get a couple of pats on the backs and you get Pastor Appreciation Day. And and you, every Sunday when you preach is a chance to get a pat on the back. And you usually do get more pats on the back than you get stones thrown at you. But, you know, us pastors, we pay attention to the stones too much sometimes. Nevertheless, we don't really get that in prison ministry. You know, we're, it kind of feels like we're the underdog. Like, you know, I call pastors and oh, our mission budget is full, you know, or they don't take my calls or they don't return my calls. And I, I get angry at that, you know, and I get and I can get, yeah, I got to check my soul and wait a minute and say, hold on, I'm not inferior because I don't pastor a church and I don't hold this position or I don't have this degree or whatever. You know, I, I'm to be superior at what God's given me to do and let God connect me with the people he wants me connected with. I got off on a tangent there. So anyway, does someone else's property, position, or prosperity cause me to feel uneasy? Does it cause me to feel weird? Does it cause me to feel inferior? That's insecurity at work, by the way. Soul check number two, does the action I'm about to take, the time, talent, and treasure I'm about to expend, value others above myself? Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. And so when we're trying to get more, we need to ask the question, how does this benefit the bigger picture? People people around me, my family, my community, my church. We're not just trying to get our own way because we want to feel this gratification, but we're trying you know, we're trying to build the kingdom. Uh, <coughs> I've also seen this at work in churches by the way. One church, you know, uh, it used to be very much turf wars when I'm not I'm not picking on the church, by the way. I've just seen a lot of church. And so, you know, you got a church that's doing well, it's thriving, it's doing okay, and suddenly one of the associate pastors decides he wants to start his own church. And there'll be an, a turf war over where this guy can put his church. Can he put it, you know, has it got to be five miles away, 10 miles away? It used to be written in the bylaws, I think, of the Assemblies of God that, that you couldn't have another church within a certain distance of another Assembly of God church. And on the surface, that kind of makes makes sense. But the church that we base out of, for example, Clover Hill uh, used to be Assembly of God. It's still Assembly of God Church. They just go by Clover Hill Church. Um, I love Pastor Stan Grant. He is one of my life's heroes, plain and simple. If I came to him tomorrow, and Lord knows he'd have to write on a wall with his finger for me to do this, but if I came to him tomorrow and I said, hey, Stan, I feel like God wants us to start a church, and I think it's going to be, you know, three miles down the road, he would say, well, look, I'm going to start letting you preach more often, and, and then I'm sure some people will want to go with you, so we'll give you 50 or 100 people and get you started. That is a kingdom mindset, not building. He He's even said this. He goes, man, I'm not trying to build my kingdom. I'm trying to build God's kingdom. 
So he's got a big picture mindset. And I've seen him do that, by the way. I've seen him send 100 or 200 people with someone to start a church uh, probably about mm, maybe 10 miles away. And that church actually grew bigger than his church. And of course, he's he's a flesh creature like all of us. I'm sure he has some you know, weird feelings, but he checks himself and says, man, I'm not in this to make a name for me. And so ask yourself, does the action I'm about to take the time, talent, or treasure I'm about to expend value others above myself. Am I keeping a big picture mindset? So I'll check question three. Does the action I'm about to take, the time, talent, or treasure I'm about to expend, create division or disorder? Does it create it in my home, my community, my workplace, or my church? James 3.16, James writes, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Boy, I've seen that in church too, but you've seen it in your work. You've seen it where people get on a, you know, they get on a high horse to want to do something. They discount everybody else and they don't want to hear feedback and they press on. They ignore counsel and uh, they just want to do it their way. And if you don't let them, they're going to take their ball, go home. They're going to quit, you know. And, and so we've got to guard against that. That word ambition in the Greek means the seeking of followers and adherence by means of gifts, the seeking of followers by ambition, rivalry, self-seeking, a feud, faction. That's what that word means in the, in the Greek. I love that. The seeking of followers and adherence by means of gifts. You can have someone that is tremendously gifted, uh, maybe even on staff at a church. I've seen this. And because of their gifts, they've got, you know, a fan base, people that like them, people like the way that they do a certain thing in church, and they get a vision to do something, but it doesn't fall under the vision vision of the senior leader, and they create havoc because of that. They want to do it their way, and they're pulling against the senior pastor's vision. Again, I'm talking a lot from church, but this can happen anywhere, and, and so... If what you're doing now, that doesn't mean there's going to, there's always going to be naysayers. Whenever you try to, you know, do something new, you create change, and you know, take one step forward, people are going to try try to push you back, and you've got to be discerning. We're always going to end up rocking the boat a little bit when we're trying to create change or trying to advance. Um, that's why I say, you know, seek counsel from people that you know, love you, and believe in you, and uh, make sure that you're not causing unnecessary pain. Um, not I notice it doesn't say that definition doesn't say friction. There's all there's no progress without some friction. There's always going to be pushback. But is the thing you're about to do, is it causing deep division and unnecessary pain? Then you need to check yourself. This might be selfish ambition. I might be being motivated by the wrong things, such as envy. Soul check question four, the last one. Is the action I'm about to take an act of service to others or the pursuit of of distinction. Dave, uh, Dave Harvey wrote a book called Rescuing Ambition. I'm going to read just a little excerpt. He said, but among all the passions which, which mislead, endanger, and harass the mind, none is more hostile to its peace, none more blind, none more delirious than the love of distinction. The love of distinction never has a project, purpose, or person in mind beyond self. The most important thing isn't the success of a business or a great endeavor. The most important thing is that I be remembered for being the best, for being first. It's the trap on the path of ambition. Selfishness is in its nature little and base, 
but no passion and no pursuits are more absolutely selfish than the love of distinction. One's self is here the sole object, and in this object all the labors, pursuits, and wishes terminate. That's pretty, pretty powerful, isn't it? That search for distinction. You know, there's nothing wrong with you know, trying to trying to be original, trying to be creative, but throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon had it all, did it all, and he wrote over and over again, there is nothing new under the sun. And so our distinction is found in Christ and Christ alone. We are valuable. We've been given our own fingerprint, our own DNA, our own set of desires and, and things that he creates in us. The work that he's doing in us uh, is distinct in and of itself. We don't need to go out and make a name for ourselves at the expense of everybody else. You know, I, it's funny. We were we were near the villages in Florida on this last prison tour. I'm not again. I'm not picking on anybody, but I thought this was kind of funny. Everybody there has a golf cart. It got golf cart. It's like a golf cart village, man. I mean, everybody. That's how everybody gets around. It's how you go to the Walmart. You go everywhere. There's just thousands of golf carts that look like special paths everywhere, bridges and tunnels, and uh, everybody's got fairly annoying. Normal looking golf carts. There are different ones, fancy ones. I'm sure there's, I don't know much about golf carts. But all of a sudden, here comes this guy, and he's got a golf cart that looks like a um, 1940s coupe. I mean, it is, it's bad to the bone. It's cool looking. And I'm not judging the guy. There's nothing wrong with having cool things, you know. Uh, I looked them up. Those things are like $15,000. And, you know, hey, God don't mind if you have a nice golf cart. I just thought, hmm, I wonder if that guy is seeking distinction. If he is, he sure found it. And that doesn't mean, you know, there's nothing wrong. Here's where I would say in, in what uh, Dave Harvey says in that book. There's nothing wrong with seeking distinction, you know, to be remarkable, to be known for something, if it's not at the expense of other people, hurting other people, stepping on other people. I lied. That wasn't the last one. Soul check question five. Does the timing of my potential action make sense? We can look at what someone is doing or what someone has and say we're inspired for it. We could be envious, right? This is where we really need the Holy Spirit to check us. And we could jump the gun. We could say, oh man, people go into debt all the time because of that. They see somebody that just got a brand new car and uh, man, our piece of junk. We need so you start to feel lesser than. Okay, you you feel inferior because you're driving this twenty year old jalopy. Boy, God, <laughs> he set me up. I was I've driven brand new cars. I've owned quite a few brand new cars, and I've owned two houses, one on five acres and a beautiful piece of property and beautiful area and everything. And when we launched Life of the Verge, we're in this rattle trap camper. I mean, we look like the hill Beverly Hillbillies going down the road, man. And and even after we finally did get into another house which was a miracle. We don't own the house, but we live in a house without wheels now. We still travel by wheels. And uh, the car that we towed was this beat-up uh, Ford Contour. It was a 1999 Ford Contour, which isn't a terrible car. I mean, it's an economy car. But my daughter had backed into someone when she owned the car, and she cracked the bumper. And the bumper, just, you know, is made out of that plastic stuff. It just progressively got worse and worse. And I just look like I'm driving a piece of junk that's been in a, you know, crash or been in, what do they call those things? Uh, 
the uh, the derbies where they crash into each other. Anyway, you know, I, I, I'm driving this piece of junk car down the road. I drove it, drove it across the country, and I didn't feel inferior. I mean, I had to maybe fight it in the beginning, but I kind of gave myself to the fact that it's more important than we're doing what God called us to do. And my wife felt the same way than having nice things. Nice things come and go. Maybe one day we'll have a nicer vehicle. I believe, God, we will. But for now, we're just going to use what we got. We're going to use wisdom. We're not going to go into debt. And uh, today, we, we drive a you know fairly late model uh, Silverado. We drive a camper that no doubt creates envy in some people when we pull on the lot. It's the nicest you know camper in the campground we're in right now, at least one, probably in the top three or five campers in this whole campground. Uh, it's a really nice RV today. But guess what? We're debt-free. We don't owe a dime on any of it. And, and how many people get into debt because they see something someone else has and they figure, man, I, I feel lesser than and I'm going to have to have that to feel uh, comfortable with myself again. Then everything will be all better. And then they go into massive debt for cars and houses and jewelry and clothes or whatever. And so... Guard yourself against those things, you know. God uses time to align the use of our potential with his master plan. So don't rush into things. Let God test your motives. And, you know, I've heard someone say, God's will, God's bill. And sometimes those waits are really, really long. You know, it was in 1982 when I gave my heart to the Lord that I really felt like I wanted to use my guitar to reach people for Christ. And not just because I wanted to reach people for Christ, but because I love to play guitar. I wanted to use the thing that I love to communicate the one who loves me to other people. Well, that was 1982. The door didn't open fully to do what we do today. When I said that, I didn't mean play guitar in church, which I love. I meant outside of church to somehow build a bridge to people that don't come to church that didn't start to come to fruition until 2011. That was a long wait. I call it the long wait. And so be patient and let God put the pieces together. Let the things converge the way God wants them to do. Uh, we don't have to live for ambitious approval, but we can act ambitious because we have approval. That was from Dave Harvey, by the way. There's another quote. We no longer live ambitious for approval, but we act ambitious because we have approval. So this is no easy dance, the dance between selfish ambition and false humility. And those are a few soul checks. Sometimes our life is shaped in, in the best way by the questions that we ask. Frequently, I will sit down with a piece of paper or my journal and a pen, and I'll ask myself questions. You know, what's causing this feeling? Um, you know, I, I just ask hard questions of myself. Why does this make sense? You know, am I being am too ambitious in this? Am I not being ambitious enough? Am I looking for approval? Am I looking for applause? Because I'll be point blank and tell you that like many people, probably like you, I want the least amount of work in the least amount of time to gain the most uh, effect. And there's nothing wrong with aiming at that as long as we're soul-checking ourselves, and we're not hurting people, and we're not doing it out of our insecurity or, or out of envy. And so wanting more can be a very, very good thing. Jesus promised more. He promised an abundant 
life. But let him do all that stuff in his timing as you walk with him. And don't get ahead of what God is trying to do. Don't compare your life with other people, what they're doing. Because what Solomon said, uh, there's a lot, there is a lot of truth. He, now, some versions say most people. Some versions uh, allude to basically all you know, progress is what he's saying. All toil. He says in, in uh, the NIV, it says, I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Um, I, I read another version that says most people. It doesn't say everyone. So I think we can be inspired, but we got to guard ourselves against envy. Went into huge overtime, but this is the end of this series. So I hope you got something out of it. And uh, I pray that you enjoy the abundant life. I want to enjoy the abundant life, but I want to check my soul along the way and make sure that I'm keeping a big picture mindset and that I'm not living and working out of envy for what someone else is doing, someone else has, that kind of thing. So God bless you. Have a fantastic week. Sometimes falling angels fly Just a reminder that Life on the Verge is a debt-free, fully donor-funded 501c3. All your gifts are tax-deductible, and we appreciate them. You can find out more at Life on the Verge, make your donation there, or you can find the address to mail your gift to. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate you so much. God bless.